Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. Vaccines cause autism? Well, I have one million results that say they don't, and one result that says they do. I knew it. If humans are so rational, then how come we suffer from so many cognitive biases? Is knowing that you have certain cognitive biases enough to counteract their influences on your thinking? I'm not biased. You're biased. He's a man with a plan. Got a counterfeit dollar in his hand. He's Mr. Know-it-all. So she doesn't like me? No. She said that? Yes. She told you she doesn't like me? Yes. What were her exact I don't like him. Our guest is University of Virginia psychologist Brian Nozick. Cognitive Bias, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Why are our minds so full of cognitive biases? Is there any hope of overcoming them? Or are they hopelessly beyond our control? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Ah, uh, except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz, sitting in for John Perry. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where both Ken and I teach philosophy. Well, Deborah, you've been a frequent guest on the show, but it's great to have you joining me behind the mic, so to speak. It's always great to be here, Ken. Now, today, we're asking about cognitive bias. It's another episode in our ongoing series on intellectual humility. Aristotle defined humans as rational animals, but he was wrong. The human mind is riddled with cognitive biases. I'll say, Deborah, did you know? I looked this up the other day. There are like 150 named cognitive biases. There's confirmation bias, in-group bias, loss aversion, the halo effect, endowment effects, and then there's something called the IKEA effect, of all things. And every time you turn around, some clever psychologist is naming yet another one. Well, whatever you name them, cognitive biases certainly suck. They distort gender relations, racial relations, employment, education, our self-images, politics. They even distort science. And you know what? We're mostly not even aware of them. That makes them really hard to correct. Here's an example that always bothers me. Take a group of teachers. Divide them into two random groups. Give each group the exact same set of papers to grade, exact same papers, Deborah, but put African-American sounding names on the one set and Anglo sounding names on the other. I, I bet you know the punchline here, right? Yeah, I do, unfortunately. African-American sounding names get lower grades than the Anglo sounding names. That's why I had such problems back in school. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what should we conclude about this? I mean, should we conclude that teachers are just bigots? But you know what? We all do it. Black, white, male, female, liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter. Well, okay, so maybe teachers just need to try harder. They need to focus on the quality of the paper and block out all these extraneous factors. The ironic thing is that trying can actually make it worse. 
And that's because it biases you to thinking you've succeeded. It's like you go, hey, I've no more bias. And then you go, this is what I think, and I'm not biased, so it must be true. Oh, goodness. So I, I, I bet you're going to tell me that there's some clever name for this one, too. Of course. It's called the I think it, therefore it's true effect. Okay. So so look, what, what, should we just conclude we're doomed to, to cognitive bias? Well, we certainly can't just will our biases away. Well, okay. But what about education and training? That's got to help. You'd be surprised. Even highly educated and trained scientists still suffer from cognitive biases. And even we... The ever-so-rational philosophers have our biases. Oh, no, that's a depressing thought. So, so look, this seems to me to me suggest that the mind is just a junkyard. Is that what we're saying here? No, the mind's not a junkyard. It was designed by evolution. And evolution doesn't do junk. Evolution does beneficial adaptations. Uh, but cognitive biases, they're not beneficial. They're useless. Well, they probably were very beneficial at one point. On the savanna, if you took time to consider things from all angles, you probably wouldn't survive. So natural selection designed our brains to make quick and dirty decisions on the fly. Now, granted, these decisions didn't always yield the truth, but they helped keep our ancestors alive. So our cognitive biases are features rather than simply bugs. Ah, uh, maybe once upon a time. But you know what, uh, Dorothy? I mean, Deborah, we're not on the savannah anymore. Qu click your heels and make all these quick and dirty uh, decisions go away. It won't cut it in the modern world. You know, to thrive in the modern world, we need to de-bias our minds. Good luck with that. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure it's as hard as you're making it out to be. I mean, because take those teachers. Here's an idea. They can just de-bias just by doing what we do in academic journals, anonymize student papers. It doesn't take Herculean effort. It doesn't take a lot of education. It's easy. Okay, I grant in that case we can deal with it. But to think that there'll always be an easy fix like that is just an example of the optimism bias oh. at at work. God, optimism. But can we stop with the cute names already? Look, I don't think I'm suffering from optimism bias. I really don't. I'm suggesting that, okay, maybe we just take our biases one by one, kind of think about them piecemeal, and develop sort of local strategies for overcoming them. Who could object to that? Maybe you have a point here. And to help us strategize about overcoming our biases, our roving philosophical reporter, Holly McDeed, has prepared a little primer on the variety of cognitive biases. She files this report. When I was a kid, I tried selling acorn necklaces in my middle school cafeteria. As in, necklaces I made out of acorns. As in, acorns I found in my backyard. I thought they were worth at least 10 bucks, and I was astonished when my business did not take off. Turns out, researchers have an explanation for why I came to believe these acorn necklaces were worth so much. People tend to value something that they've created more than an identical product created by someone else. Daniel Mochan, a professor at Tulane University, says people also overvalue products they helped make. Say I, I built a table and it came out a little bit crooked. To me, it might be the most beautiful thing in the world because I made it. Mochan calls this cognitive bias the IKEA effect. To test this theory, Mochan had participants in a study make and build things like origami, Lego sets, and of course, IKEA furniture. 
he published the results in a study called When Labor Leads to Love. And what we found is that people tended to be willing to pay more money for the exact same product when they had built it than when someone else had built it. The fact that you imbue the product you created with a value, um, it's sort of a signal of your own competence and your own self. There's similar cognitive biases, like the endowment effect. That's when people value something more because they own it. Another bias says people value something more the harder they work for it. One of the ways in which cults try to brainwash people is by putting a lot of effort into joining and being part of it. Then again, researchers have biases themselves. There's something called a confirmation bias that says our minds reject information we don't agree with. There's a similar bias called implicit egotism that says people love what's familiar. So people with the last name Carpenter are slightly more likely to become carpenters. People who share the same birthday are slightly more likely to get married to one another. My favorite cognitive bias, though, is the rhyme as reason effect, which says that if something rhymes, we're more likely to believe it. In a study, Matthew McGlone, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, asked participants to identify statements they thought were true. Participants were more likely to say that the rhyming statements were accurate. So they found what sobriety conceals alcohol reveals to be more truthful than what sobriety conceals alcohol unmasks. Like a lot of cognitive biases, McGlone says the rhyme is reason effect has helped humans survive. It's evolution. The ease with which we process information is something that our brains have evolved to equate with familiarity. If something feels familiar, it means it hasn't eaten us yet. But cognitive biases can also cloud our judgment in more serious ways. For example, what if a rhyme could help decide a court case? Remember this famous one? O.J. Simpson in a knit cap from two blocks away is still O.J. Simpson. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. A paraphrase of it says, if the glove doesn't fit, you must find him not guilty. That doesn't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense in and of itself. By virtue of packaging it in this pleasant-sounding rhyming form, it takes some pretty suspicious reasoning and makes it that much more compelling. It might seem scary to think that so many of our choices aren't the result of rational judgment. So are we responsible for any of our own beliefs? McGlone says when people are paying attention, some cognitive biases, like the rhyme is reason effect, stop working. But when we're compromised in terms of our attention or our energy level, it might be something that we really have to worry about. So maybe the problem with my acorn necklaces wasn't that they weren't great. Maybe it's just that there's not a whole lot of words that rhyme with acorn or with necklace to convince otherwise unwilling buyers to hand over 10 bucks. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly Timothy. Thanks, Holly, for that fascinating tour of the junkyard that is the human brain. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Deborah Satz, and today we're asking about cognitive bias. We're joined now by Brian Nosek, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, where he's also the co-founder and director of the Center for Open Science. Brian, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, so what first drew you to this topic of cognitive bias? Was it an attempt to overcome your own, perhaps, or was it the, a way of coping with all the biases of all the people around you? 
uh, it was an observation of both, which was just that uh, that sense of we make assumptions of each other uh, based on gender or race or age all of the time uh, and in often in ways that are surprising or not intended. So I was uh, a student taking uh, computer science classes and women's studies classes at the same time. And just the experience of being in those two classrooms and the different assumptions that people made about me uh, as a male in those classrooms and about others uh, as men or women in those classrooms sort of was stunning in sort of that revelation of, do we even know that we're doing this? Are we even aware that we are trying, we are using some background assumptions that we may not even believe about what men and women are like to decide how to interact with men and women? Great. Well, as Ken said in the opening, researchers have discovered lots of cognitive biases. I think the number is approaching 200. And I'm wondering, are they really uncovering different manifestations of a few underlying biases and just giving each manifestation a different name? Do we really have so many biases? It's hard to say. I think it's more the former, that we are giving lots of names to things that are slightly different. And the reason that I think that is that there's probably a smaller set of ways in which the mind works, makes assumptions, right? Familiarity came up in one of the uh, earlier examples. Uh, and that sense of familiarity leading to liking, leading to believing, uh, probably underlies a number of different biases that end up with different names. But they end up with different names for a couple of reasons. One is that the, the ways in which these things manifest can be quite different. And another uh, is that it's hard to tell if it's based on the same processes yeah. of the mind because we can't really figure out what the processes of the mind are. Very so easily. I'm just curious then, you know, are, maybe there's bias in the finding of all these biases and, um, are, you know, there's a lot of incentives for scientists to name new biases, Right. So yeah. I noticed well, that, that some yeah. of the biases are named after the scientists themselves. <laughs> right, right. You didn't bring up the NOSEC bias. I was <laughs> disappointed. Uh, although it hasn't been discovered yet. I'm still trying. Uh, the, but yes, the, there are lots of incentives for researchers to name biases new things because part of the way in which the system works for discovering things in science uh, is to make a mark of having found something new. If I f find a bias uh, and it's a lot like the bias that you found, well, I could say, oh, I found what you found. Uh, and everybody says, well, that's great. She already found it. If I instead say, oh, I found this new thing and it's called this, uh, then people might pay more attention. Well, this is very fascinating, Brian, and we're going to have to dig in to what really makes for a cognitive bias, but we'll do that in our next segment. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about cognitive bias with Brian Nosek from the University of Virginia. In our next segment, we'll dig deeper into the nature of cognitive biases. Where do our biases come from? How do they influence perception, reasoning, and decision-making? Do they help or hinder the mind? Cognitive bias, feature, bug, or both, when Philosophy Talk continues. Philosophy Talk needs you. Show your support for Philosophy Talk by becoming a partner in our online community of thinkers. Your tax-deductible donations help us stay on the air. And the community needs more thinkers like you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for donating. Oh, bias, don't let bias see your mind. 
If we humans are the so-called rational animal, as Aristotle insisted, why do we have so many cognitive biases? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, sitting in for John Perry, and we're thinking about cognitive bias. Our guest is Brian Nosek from the University of Virginia. So, Brian, I want to start by digging into an example and then zoom out and... and uh, and talking about the structure of cognitive biases in general. So let's look at an example in detail. What's the most striking or surprising example of a cognitive bias that you know of? Well, for me, it's the general form of bias that manifests in what we presume to be the most objective enterprise uh, that humanity is pursuing, which is science. Right? Scientists are supposed to be uh, figuring out what the objective truths, uh, to the extent that truths uh, are identifiable, of how the world works. And yet, scientists have many biases in how it is they generate, appreciate, evaluate evidence, uh, and that's because they are part of the system. Science is done by scientists, and they can't help uh, but use their own limits of human reasoning in trying to discover what's real. So are scientists subject to cognitive biases that the rest of us, just the, just the cognitive biases that the rest of us are, because they're human all too human, as Nietzsche would say? Or does the science have its own kind of built-in biases that are special to science? Well, the the... Biases are the same, but the way they manifest is somewhat different uh, because of some of the unique structures of science. So give me so an in example. Science, yeah. So in science, I, to, for me to get a job, for me to keep my job, for me to advance in my career, the currency is publication. I need to publish as frequently as I can and in the most prestigious outlets that I can. And so to do that, I have to get findings that are publishable. Uh, and in science, not everything gets published. I study lots of things. Uh, some of that gets written up into reports, and then some of that gets reviewed by my peers, and some of that gets through that peer review process and into a publication. And so the way in which biases like hindsight bias and confirmation bias and familiarity biases like the ones you mentioned already, the way those manifest are me reasoning about my findings as I obtain them and then prettying them up in order to be more publishable, to get the rewards that I need to survive in science. So that does make it seem like the structure of incentives doesn't align well in the light of our biases with generating truth. So I'm wondering what you think yeah. about things like, um, you know, the discouragement of replication, because yeah. trying to do replications doesn't win you a Nobel Prize. There's no Nobel Prize for replications. It's for original work. There's no Nobel Prize for um, proving a null hypothesis. And you can't get published in journals for doing things like that. Right. Yeah, that's a key point. So what are the core incentives? Of what kinds of results are better results, right? Better results are novel results. Better results are positive. You find a relationship or find an impact rather than saying nothing to see here. Uh, and clean and tidy results are better uh, than results that have exceptions and messes and things that don't wait, make sense. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Nothing to see here. I mean, what if uh, Brian Nosek had done some amazing work that everybody thought was amazing work, and Ken Taylor came along and said, actually, nothing to see here. Wouldn't Ken Taylor get some no notoriety by challenging 
kind of received wisdom and showing that Brian Nosek hadn't uh, delivered the goods? Why not? There, there can be a little bit of benefit from that, of trying to challenge conventional wisdom if it's compelling, but it's a real uphill climb. Uh, and you can also think about that in reverse. If you had first said, nothing to see here about some new phenomenon that you were studying, everyone had said, well, yeah, so what? Yeah. Uh, but then if I later come along and say, actually, there is something, uh, then I'm the one that gets yeah. the theme, and you're the one that just couldn't do it. So, I mean, I can see ways that we could tinker with the incentive system by, like, founding and supporting journals that publish replications or that um, give way to people who prove null hypotheses that there's nothing here. But what we, can we do in ordinary life? I can't, you know, if I'm biased, there's no journal yeah. that's going to pick up <laughs> and replicate yeah. my biases. Yeah. We yeah. don't want so somebody following of... me around and trying to replicate. <laughs> that's right. So the journals is sort of a, an add-on solution in the process of trying to deal with biases. But really, science has a different way of handling these biases that does apply across uh, human endeavors. And one of those is transparency, right? For no, in order for a scientific claim to become credible, uh, you have to show how it is you arrived at that claim. Here's the evidence that I generated. Here's the way I analyzed it. Here's my interpretation. And if I don't show you that, then the community will be more suspicious so, of that claim. So look, that, that's good. And we're going to talk about how to cope and ameliorate our cognitive biases a lot in the second, last part of our, our, our conversation with you. But I want, to, I want to kind of rub our nose in the fact of it a little bit more because I want to yeah. think about where these uh, biases come from. Deborah said evolution doesn't do junk. So if you look at these biases from an evolutionary perspective, from kind of a design perspective, I mean, they yeah. sound like bugs, but if you look at them from a design perspective, they might look like features. I, do you buy that thought that actually some of these cognitive biases are ad adaptive features of our mind rather than sort of maladaptive bugs of our mind? What do you think about that thought? Yeah, in fact, I insist on it. Uh, so th this is really the core, I think, of understanding something about cognitive bias, which is that it's rooted in very ordinary operations of the mind that usually serve us very well. The times where it leads us astray are very notable and noticeable and often are things that we want to correct and do something about. But most of the time, these heuristics are making the world a lot easier for us to deal with. So give me and an example. Give, give, me, give me an example of something that from looked at in one way from this kind of design yeah. perspective looks like a feature but looked at another way or maybe taken out of context, it looks more like a bug. Give, can you give me a concrete example? Sure. So confirmation bias, one of the most pervasive biases, right? The basic idea of confirmation bias is I'll look for information consistent with my current view of the world, and I'll be more likely to take that seriously because it reaffirms what I think I already know. You know, we can see the problem of that in a world where there's lots of competing information and some of it is false. You know, the political world uh, of today, confirmation bias leads to lots of polarization. Okay, there's all the bad. What's the good of confirmation bias? Well, the good of confirmation bias is if I have a solution that works, keep doing it, right? As soon as I figure out this is a way that I can get food and right. I need to get food to survive, great. I'm going to do that again and again and again and again. I don't need to search for the exceptions uh, because I don't need to waste my time with that. It's only when I'm confronted with 
when it doesn't work, that they will then search for new information. So, Deborah, you so it's to, a simplifying process. Deborah, you want to so get So I just it seems to me that there's some so you're mentioning a core problem that biases help us address, right? There's too much information yeah. and we need to find yeah. a way to pick out what's salient. So that's, right. you know, one core problem. Another core problem might be that sometimes we have to act very quickly in the face of uncertainty, and so we've got yeah. to jump to conclusions and a bunch of biases help us do that. Are those right. the two main core problems? Are there other core problems that biases help us address? Since, you know, some biases go, you know, make us go really wrong, especially in yeah. a world of interdependent, cooperative, diverse people. Yeah, yeah. So quick decision making is a big one. And, uh, and that's a very useful to have a heuristic because instead of having to think through the entire problem, you can say, no, run. That thing with big teeth run. doesn't matter if, and later I find out, oh, actually was a, a fake thing. Uh, well, that's not a big deal. I at least saved myself. Mm-hmm. That, that's it. Uh, I mean, you're pointing out the, something really important just because sure. I think this is really central. Because if you're thinking about it in a design way, design a mind that can survive in a world, there are the cost of uh, yes. false positives and the cost of false negatives. And sometimes exactly. the <laughs> cost of a, of a false negative, oh, that's not a t- tiger. And you ram, well, that's yeah. no big deal. Right. But if you right. think that is a tiger, right, right? <laughs> or something. Yeah, right. exactly. And so we don't often in the deciding the extent to which something is a bias, we don't often consider the unobserved, the unknowns of what if it hadn't happened or the or the false negative side. Another example of one of these these sort of general things that biases can help with is resolving ambiguity. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of information. It's hard to parse, but often the information itself is incomplete. And so we have to do something to fill in the gaps, to impose some interpretation in order to do anything uh, because we just don't have enough. Mm-hmm. So what do we use to fill in the gaps? That inductive process of deciding, well, I need to do something now. Is it safe or is it not safe? Well, I'm going to use some of my past experience, my assumptions, my beliefs about things that are sort of like this in order to help me go to do the next thing. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about cognitive bias with Brian Nosek and Cynthia from San Francisco's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Cynthia. What's your comment or question? Uh, my question is, um, is there uh, research on bi- bias differences in gender? And if there is, what are some of the salient points? So, Brian, that's a question for you, definitely. So are there differences in gender in this stuff? Yeah, so it's it's a very interesting question. And on the general idea of are men or women more or less biased, uh, most of the evidence suggests there is not a gender difference. Men and women are susceptible to the same kinds of cognitive biases uh, in reasoning and judgment and decision making. Now, of course, there are situations where you might predict that it would manifest uh, a little bit differently depending on differences in prior experiences or culture or otherwise. So, wait a minute. Uh, those uh, what seem about this to be one? local. Brian, what about yeah, this one? I read uh, recently that men are evolved to overestimate uh, women's signals of sexual availability, and that's an evolutionarily stable strategy. And women aren't in the same way evolved. Something about uh, women are more t- attuned by evolution to the reality of commitment among males, whether males are will- willing to commit long term. So there's a difference in the way men and women suss each other out. Do you th- is that true? or, or uh, I mean, there's, there's a difference. Yeah, I, I mean, you're blowing my mind on this because you're explaining my entire dating histories all of a sudden. <laughs> exactly. That all makes sense to me. Right. So, yeah. The argument goes, for a male, uh, 
the cost of being wrong about a woman's ovaries yeah. is, is negligible, right? Because if you always assume, well, given any sign of sexual attraction, pursue that woman, right? Well, then you'll end up pursuing lots of women, and lots of women will rebuff you, but big deal. But if you don't do that, then you won't get opportunities to mate. And, but for women, what matters, according to the evolutionary strategy, is you know, that the male will be around, so they need to be attuned to levels of commitment. I know some feminists Yeah, I was going to say, stuff. I think we have to be a little skeptical of these evolutionary explanations for everything, since a lot yeah. of biases look like they're filtered through incentive structures and institutions, just like we were talking about in the case of science. There are things we right. can do that can white out, so to speak, bias. Um, and I always worry about these, you know, evolutionary stories about, you know, yeah. why women wear high-heeled shoes yeah. um, so to what signal you, to men yeah. that they're not going to run away. So what do you think of these yeah. evolutionary – I mean, a lot of this design thinking is evolutionary design thinking. So what do you think about those as a general cat? I, I hear some skepticism in Deborah's voice, and I know lots of other people have that kind of skepticism. So what do you yeah, think? I think the skepticism is very fair uh, because with anything that you observe in today's culture, you can generate an interesting functional story for why that would have evolved. Uh, that's, we're just fantastic at generating narratives of, of explanations. We might call that a narrative bias. I don't know. Let's, let's make up a new term. If that hasn't been used, I've just cleaned it. Uh, there is a NOSEC the, bias. <laughs> yes, finally. The NOSEC narrative bias. <laughs> I have arrived. Uh, so, yeah, it's so easy to generate narratives for anything. I mean, you, I mean we, could, we could play it as a game. Like, observe a difference between men and women and generate a causal story that has an evolutionary history for it, right? Wearing pink versus wearing blue, mm. right? I bet we could generate a story and then we would find information that in the 1860s, actually those, those color gender codes were reversed. Men were more likely associated with pink. Oh no, that ruins our evolutionary yeah. story. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's very hard to get good evidence about evolutionary stories. That, that's uh, definitely true. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about cognitive bias with Brian Nosek. Ariane from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ariane. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, just to continue that understanding about the subjectivity of stories and the, our own personal perspectives, they've done studies that show that people are generally more empathic with people who are similar to them. And um, recognizing that, I think it's really important to understand how powerful and important ethnic studies programs truly are and why they're being strategically defunded. And also, not only that, that we, it behooves us to um, offer other classes, like even in high school as well, like anthropology that shows the subjectivity of our culture and our, um, often our historical points of view in relationship to other more vulnerable countries and other people that have less power than ourselves. So I just really encourage that. I think... Preschool teachers know that at circle time, they invite children um, cooperation and understanding of different perspectives, but it shouldn't end there. We really need to include it in our public education system in terms of, of regular required class time. That's my thought. So I, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, in fact, I've been wondering after being exposed to all these biases, why we don't uh, teach about this earlier on. 
because so. we are mostly unaware of our biases. Yeah. And why aren't students yeah. in high school or junior high school um, uh, exposed to those biases? Those are those, that's a good question, Brian. I want to give you a chance to answer, but I want to add on something, though, because you guys are having the optimistic side <laughs> that somehow being exposed to the fact of them will make <laughs> us change them. I, maybe, maybe not. But some of them actually do rather seem to be hardwired into the architecture of the brain and just wanting to change them or even saying having a determination to change them doesn't automatically make them go away. So before we go to the break, you want to comment on that whole stream that we just had there, Brian? Well, you took what seemed to be an answerable question and turned it into a multi-part, highly hard-to-answer question. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's okay. Uh, you know, these these are the big things. Uh, and I thought the caller's point was very good, is that a lot of uh, what cultural studies types of courses uh, can do is expose people to the assumptions that they have based on the cultural context that they're in. Uh, and that can be very useful as an awareness-raising device. But I think your point is very good uh, as well, which is awareness It may be necessary, but it isn't sufficient uh, to deal with a lot of these cognitive biases, and perhaps we can unpack that further. So I, I have a question about that um, going to this, which is just, um, does it help to have diverse people in the room when you're discussing or talking about cognitive biases? Does that help? Uh, it depends. So the diversity on its own uh, doesn't necessarily address any particular bias if everyone actually shares that same bias. So, for example, uh, my colleagues Sophie Trewalter and Kelly Brownell have done research on uh, pain management of African-American versus white patients by doctors and nurses and otherwise. How much pain medication do they give when people are complaining of pain? Uh, and they have not found any differences uh, in by gender, by ethnicity of the doctors in their pain medication administration to black and white patients. And there's always a bias, right? White patients get more pain medication uh, for the same level of reported pain as compared to black patients. So, you know, you gave the answer that is one of the five laws of social science. It depends. But after a break, <laughs> yeah, right. you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about cognitive bias with Brian Nosick from the University of Virginia. In our final segment, we'll think about strategies for debiasing the mind. Are attention and focus enough? Or do we need strategies that rely on external aids, as in the example of blinding papers for review? Debiasing the mind when Philosophy Talk continues. Thank you for listening to this week's free stream. Become a partner at our community of thinkers, and you can download each new episode of Philosophy Talk. Take it off your taxes and add it to your intellectual credit. Thank you for listening, and thank you for thinking. With so many unconscious biases infecting our cognition, does anyone ever really see the real you? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that unbiasedly questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, sitting in for John Perry. Our guest is Brian Nosek from the University of Virginia, and we're thinking about cognitive bias. 
So, Brian, I got kind of a two-part question for you. We can take them one part at a time. I'll tell you the two parts, but let's take them one part at a time. First of all, I want to go back to this awareness thing. How do we become aware of our cognitive bias? And I don't mean just in general, but how do I become aware of them operating in me now? Or can I ever do that? Second, to what extent is recognizing them and then trying to overcome them helpful in debiasing our mind? So let's take that first thing about how do I become more aware? This is a super hard problem because we don't observe our mental operations. We only experience their output. So if those processes that are happening behind the scenes that are helping me with deciding what's happening in the world are influenced by biases, I can't look inside my mind and see that happening. And so it's very hard to recognize our own biases. Emily Pronin has called this the bias blind spot. We can see biases in others more easily than we can see them in ourselves. Uh, because we have such confidence uh, in our own experience of our own reasoning uh, compared to what we see in the behaviors of others and, and why they might be doing that. But why think so of this? I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, I was uh, going to say, just, why think of this as an individual project, you know, that I yeah. am doing this on my own? So that's why yeah. in the last segment when we were talking about can it help to bring other people into a conversation? Um, right. So you had given the example that doctors are biased about the um, pain medication uh, prescriptions for black and white patients. But what if some of those black patients were sitting in yeah. the room? I, I, I get you, yes. Deborah. But, 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 uh, and, and that's a kind of like, I don't want to call it a million thought. An in optimism a bias. Uh, uh, <laughs> a, well, a million thought in the following way. <laughs> you know, reasoning on my own, I'm going to believe all kinds of crazy things. Put a bunch of people around me who's going to react to my believing. They're going to press me and push me this way and that. And that's one of the cool tricks of science. It's not an individual that's solitary right. undertaking. There is a scientific community that is in collectively trying to get at the truth and all these checks and balances, as it were. I think that's really cool. But what if when I get in surrounded by all these people, I think, what? what? You, you say this, but you're the one being biased. That, what, it, it could just evolve into the argument of who, whose biases are, you know, backed by what power? The biggest. <laughs> That's right. 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 And so both of these are probably happening, right? So the solution to these biases, right, if I can't depend on my own internal consultation of my mind to identify whether I'm biased, my only solution for getting more awareness of the biases in my own uh, judgment and behavior is to expose them, right? Expose the process of what I'm deciding, how I'm deciding it to others to critique, right? And so there may be some community uh, evaluation of that. There may be some automated way uh, of identifying those biases. It doesn't mm -hmm. depend on other people. It could be some other process, some watching my behaviors. Uh, and simultaneously, that can lead to retrenchment, right? So I can get all these biases once out in the public sphere can lead me to look at the other people that agree with me and say, well, they're, of course, the ones that are not biased right. because they agree with me. Mm -hmm. uh, and those other people that are telling me I'm wrong, well, they're the wrong ones. And that's, so, that's where we so are. So this, this episode is a one in a series on uh, intellectual humility. And it sounds to me like you're, in a way, suggesting, you know, surrounding yourself with other people it looks like a good thing, but one of the requirements for benefiting from that is yeah. to have a kind of degree of intellectual humility, a degree in the belief in your own fallibility when confronted with this stuff. Oh, confirmation, but I don't suffer from that, right? It, when confronted with all this, the, the fact of, of biased human cognition, to ask yourself, gee, 
am I just being biased here? Right. Of course, too much deference to others is itself a kind of bias. Um, Like go with the crowd, you know, conform. Um, So So that's why that's why this pathway of of finding the right degree of intellectual humility is a hard pathway. Can psychology help? Can your field help us with that? I mean, philosophy is obsessed with this question. Can psychology help us with that? Yeah, I think so. And just to amplify your point, I think the biggest danger in cognitive bias is overconfidence. It's that sense that I must be correct in some way or another or overestimate the likelihood that I'm correct uh, based on my own internal experience. Uh, and so the so for me, the core of the, the part relating to intellectual humility from all of this research on, on cognitive bias is that if I want to behave in a way that's aligned with my values, which is what I think most people want to do, then instead of feeling like the, the way to do that is through pure intention and, and will, right? I just have to overcome my biases by a matter of wanting to be a good person and do it justly. Instead, my best strategy is to expose my process so that others can identify when I'm being biased. And the humility aspect of it is to not see someone saying, wait a second, why did you decide that? Or here's a way you might have been wrong. Instead of taking that as an attack, take it as an opportunity. Uh, Because the identification of bias, if there is something influencing my behavior that's moving me differently than my values, then I should be saying thank you to someone that identifies the bias. But this has got to be not just an individual um, achievement. The humility has to also be a feature of groups because it's very dangerous for individuals to be humbled in a culture in which groups feel emboldened um, to, yeah. you know, think that they are in possession of the truth, because then you get conformity and groupthink yes. and um, all right. kinds yeah. of bad outcomes. And, and, that's, and that's what Mill ideals. worried deeply right. about, right? That's the thing that that's Mill right. worried very deeply about. But I want to shift this just a little bit. I mean, I think this is a really deep point that you guys are that you guys are honing in on. But I want to ask you another point, because you know, I kind of like that Aristotelian and thought that humankind is the rational animal. I kind of like that. But then I think, well, that's a thought made from uh, 10,000 feet above looking at the actual mechanisms that govern human cognition. And then I think, well, once you get down there in the weeds of the mind, in the weeds of the brain, it really does look like kind of a mess, right? It really does look like there are some truth-tracking processes, and then some people distinguish between system one and system two. System one is the quick and dirty, unreliable stuff that works in situ. System two is the kind of slow, deliberative thing, and the mind has both of them. I'm not sure there's a neat divide. I wonder if you think that if you get down into the weeds of the mind with people like you, I mean, does it look like we vindicate the Aristotelian thought that humankind is the rational animal, or what? In in the uh, in the scrum of the mind, rationality is in the exception rather than the rule. Right? We are just dealing with the information that we have and doing the best we can. Uh, that doesn't mean humans can't think rationally. Uh, they can. It's just the question is, do they, and under what conditions do they? And I think most of that uh, that ideal uh, is something that emerges eventually not in the mix of the decisions in the moment, but rather the cumulative process of trying to come to what is really going on here. Yeah. We've got time for one last caller, Hakeem from Castro Valley. What's your comment or question quickly here? Good morning to everyone. 
I'm going to say this. Uh, the human mind has been constructed and designed to follow truth. Everything is based on truth and lies. The human being is the only creature on this earth that can lie to itself. So if you don't follow truth, if the human mind does not follow truth, it's going to be taken out of its natural form, and put, and, they don't, and then it would be seeing things in a false form. You're never going to catch a bee trying to be an ant, and you're never going to catch an ant trying to be a bee. So it's based on truth, and that's what he said from the very beginning of his conversation. It's based on truth. That's all I have to say. So thanks for that, uh, Hakeem. What do you think about that, Brian? Yeah, it's an interesting point, and it makes me think of uh, a really interesting paper that someone, uh, a, a pair of folks wrote uh, in the last couple of years, which is what's the, um, what's the purpose of reasoning? Uh, we think the purpose of reasoning naturally is to get to the truth. They said, nope, that's not it. The purpose of reasoning is to win arguments, that it's a social process that we, don't, we didn't evolve reasoning to get to truth. So they're, they're sort of disagreeing with the caller's point uh, that, in fact, we use reasoning uh, in order to win arguments. To well, get right. You know, influence. there are other ways. If, if that was the point, there are better ways to win arguments, which is power. to, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, mass stones. power, yeah. right, <laughs> sticks. <laughs> Reason seems like it's on to something more than that. Yeah, and, if, and it's <laughs> not This as, sounds like it, philosopher <laughs> defensiveness to well, me. Well, no, I don't but, know. but it's not. <laughs> if we were only surrounded by other human beings and our only task was to, like, went out over them, but we've, we're surrounded and embedded in a world that is a certain way, and to thrive in that world, we can't believe that the cup is to my left when it's to my right. We've got to have some, there's got to be some, some truth, truth tracking. Don't you think? Yeah. And that's got to be at the yeah. core of it. Yeah, and, but a lot of that can be accomplished through the perceptual processes of just what's happening in the world. But the extra, these cognitive capacities of uh, deciding what's true, regardless of how I'm behaving in the world, right? The internal dialogue uh, that is then externalized in order to talk to people about what things they think might be there that aren't actually in, right in front of them. Right, those could have emerged for more social reasons. So I'm going to ask you one quick question. We got it. We're at the end. But something you said is perception less governed by bias than reasoning, rationalization. Is is perception free of bias? I would think even there, there may be because I know there's this looming effect, the perceptual looming yeah. effect, for example. So in general, how about perception? How influenced by bias is that? Perception is filled with biases, and you can experience this just by going onto YouTube and searching cognitive or perceptual illusions and get a whole bunch of them. These emerge uh, because of the very hard problem of there's a world out there, and there's the experience of the world in my brain. How does my brain get that world out there into some sort of internal experience? Well, it has our sensory systems, and that translates that world out there into these electrical chemical signals that are sent to our brain through our various uh, organs for sensation, right? Eyes and taste and hearing and everything else. Uh, and then that experience of the world out there is constructed. It's yeah. constructed based on that stuff coming in and interpretation is imposed on that stuff coming in right, that Brian, fills so, in the gaps that has all the ambiguous everything else so uh, that's going to have to be the last word this is a fascinating conversation I could go on we could go on for hours but I got to say goodbye to you so thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me it was fun
Our guest has been Brian Nosek. He's a professor of psychology from the University of Virginia, co-founder and director of the Center for Open Science. This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is, get this, cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you can become a partner in that community just by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, here's a guy who forms his biases fast. It's Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, it's hard to get worked up about cognitive biases because everybody seems to be not fighting against them, not climbing our way back to sensible lists. Well-thought-out bullet points, columns pro and con on an issue, pipe smoking, beard stroking, forelock tugging, mansplaining, exploring the ramifications, the consequences, the manly and womanly art of thinking things through is gone. It's all tainted. We call them short-term ramifications. That's cognitive bias. Long-term ramifications. Who decides these terms? Now we either aggressively pursue or tentatively reach out for the cognitive bias that is right for us. It's all about the rhetoric, not the reasoning. Who's in the room? Not what's being said. And descriptions vary. People who supported Obama were sometimes called jackbooted thugs. Not even thugs with sensible shoes. People who supported Hillary were democratic operatives. Operatives! That's like a secret spy. Some claim that we're living in a Trump era. Others insist day after day that this isn't normal. And others accuse the media of normalizing this era of ours, which may or may not be Trump. No wonder we're confused, divided, irrational. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the term fake news. I'm old enough to remember when news was said to have a liberal bias. Now it's fake, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, news is real. If a truck goes off a bridge, for example, and you report it, that's not fake news. You can betray a bias, I suppose, by demanding that truck drivers be taken off the streets. Or we should all switch over to Uber so this sort of thing will never happen again, or develop flying cars, get rid of trains, shrink humans, and put them on drones to get them to the jobs that don't exist anymore without gridlock. But that's all propaganda, or wishful thinking, or public relations, or blinkered belief systems. But the news itself is not fake. It's what we do with it. If we just sip the beer instead of chugging a 12-pack, we'd all be better off. But we are faced today with two conflicting events. We immediately go for the binary of one is good, one is bad, one is true, one is false, based on nothing more than our preconceptions. I'm thinking now of when our President Trump said that Mika from the Morning Joe show on MSNBC, which has been critical of him, said she wanted to come to his party, but he said no because she was bleeding from a facelift and he thought it was yucky. Cognitive bias and all, what a stupid, rude lie. And I think we can also agree that on its face, that's a pretty creepy public statement from a world leader. And aside from his minions, who seemed to think he was defending himself from a full frontal assault by Mongol hordes or something, most people agreed. But they also seemed to think this is some kind of attack on journalism rather than a kind of stunt previously confined to professional wrestling, is Morning Joe journalism, though. I think it's one of those morning chat shows where senators and congressmen drop by to bloviate discreetly with only occasional interference or interruption. No bombshells are dropped as a rule. No resignations submitted after an appearance in the Morning Joe. Trump is an ass. Joe and Mika are lunkhead suck-ups in a corrupt medium. Both of these things could be true. We can hold both these hots at the same time without our heads exploding. A whopping 40% of Americans agree with me. Or is that a depressing 40% view with me? Glass is half full, I guess, or half empty. It's just a glass with some water in it. Who cares? I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2017. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. Our senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Audrey Dilling, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders, not even when they're true and reasonable.
The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. You didn't just break up. Hey, it's been like three weeks. You slept with somebody three hours after you thought you broke up. I mean, bullets have left guns slower. Hey, you made it to the end of the show. Not everybody does. That means you must really like us. So help us. How can you help us? Go to philosophytalk.org, look for the I Will Help button, click it, and get ready to help. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you so much for donating.